from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Predominantly, yes, Washington Avenue. The street literally hummed with production noises, shoe-lasting machines, people, wagons, trucks, loading and unloading supplies, people with uh, rolling garment racks going up and down the sidewalks. So I'm sure it must have been a very noisy, but very lively and very interesting place to be um, in the 20th century. I'm Sarah Fenske. From its early days as a center of fur trading, St. Louis has played a key role in the garment industry. Beyond that, of course, it long dominated the shoe industry, with Washington Avenue once home to so many factories, it was known as Shoe Street USA. That history is the subject of a new book just out from Reedy Press. It's called Ready to Wear, a history of the footwear and garment industries in St. Louis. And joining us today to discuss it is its author, Valerie Battle Kinzel. Valerie, welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Valerie, it's safe to say that St. Louis's national reputation is not as a fashion mecca. Do you think the city's history of nurturing the shoe and the garment industries is, is underappreciated? Definitely. And um, that was one of the reasons I decided to try putting this book together. I uh, first and foremost am a history nerd. And um, my husband's family comes from occupational footwear background, uh, three, four generations. And the more I tried to read and find out about the footwear industry in St. Louis, the less I could find. So I started doing a little research on my own. And um, the result is this book. Hmm. So this book, it's its just great to page through this. You found so many wonderful old advertisements and illustrations and, and wonderful old photos in addition to the text here. Uh, what were some of the sources you used in putting this together? Um, I used the Missouri History Museum. They have a wonderful uh, just thousands and thousands of images that are available to use. Also, Greg and Ann Romberg have the Antiques Warehouse um, they have a lot of the old uh, gimmicks and advertising items that they photographed and allowed me to use. Also, the uh, State Historical Society of Missouri. Hmm. So a lot of good sources there. As you mentioned, you're a history nerd. I think that's very clear in this book, and I mean that as a great compliment. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's talk a bit about this history. Um, you make the case that St. Louis owes its founding to the fur trade. Why was this such a natural point for that industry to take off and, and become such a behemoth? Well, the original people who settled the fur trading village of St. Louis came up the Mississippi River from New Orleans, and the river is the predominant theme. Consider the river to have been the superhighway of uh, the late 1700s, early 1800s. Plus, it was close to the confluence with the Missouri River and the Illinois River. So from a transportation standpoint, and as the railroads came into being in the 1800s, St. Louis sat basically in the middle of the country, so it was a great place to be. Lots of supply, furs from out west, um, and that led to leather production, shoe production. There was cotton, there was wool, and that contributed to the garment industry. Hmm. So one thing kind of led to another in, in each of these cases. 
Yes. It's interesting. The fur industry, I'm sure there is still a thriving fur industry somewhere, but it's certainly not something you see many traces of here. When did that start to decline as, as this being such a big part of the St. Louis economy? Uh, probably the latter part of the 20th century. Now, there is a, a secret place you can go and see just a little bit left of one of the fur warehouse industries, and that's in the Drury Hotel downtown at uh, Market and Fourth. And if you go inside the lobby, that was once the building for the International Fur Exchange building. Hmm. And um, it's it's really pretty, very stunning. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the um, the old warehouses and fur places were part of the land clearance that came about when the Gateway Arch was in the planning stages. Okay. So so- most of those no longer exist. Okay. So at that point, a whole lot of that moved out of of where it was. We no longer had this concentrated fur district, so to speak. Correct. So one industry that has a long history here, and you do such a good job of fleshing this out in your book, but still has quite a presence here today, is the shoe industry. Now, you trace this here to George Warren Brown. Tell us a little bit about this guy. Okay. Well, up until 1870s, Shoe production was basically done on the East Coast of the United States, uh, primarily around Boston. And then products, shoe products were shipped across the country from there. George Warren Brown had worked for his brother. He had a company here in St. Louis called Hamilton Brown Shoe Company. He worked for him. He also did some work up on the East Coast. And he thought, hmm, the river's here. There's all this fur. There's materials. There's resources why can we not have production here in the Midwest in a central location? So he is really responsible for bringing that production to St. Louis and making it grow for what it became. So it sounds like he had a a sort of keen strategic eye. He understood this is an area that makes sense for this. And then he, he put it into being. Yes, he did. And it sounds like his success paved the way for an entire industry there. Was this just a matter of people kind of following uh, what he'd figured out, uh, success breeds success? That's the way it seemed from the research that that I uh, consulted, that it just, uh, he had this great idea. He was a young man. He had lots of talent, lots of ambition. And as people saw that he was successful, they jumped on and decided to start their own companies. At one time, there were 21 different shoe companies, boot companies headquartered here in St. Louis. Hmm. And we mentioned Washington Avenue was known as Shoe Street USA. Um, Of the 21 that were here, were a good chunk of those right there on Wash Ave. Yes, they were. Yes. You mentioned also in this book that St. Louis became a popular location for shoe jobbers. I love this word, shoe jobbers. What were they doing? Okay, well, one of Mr. Brown's ideas was that um, perhaps it would be time-saving to have one person do the same job every day, all day, every week, and um, do shoe production in steps, where before it had been cobblers that did many, many dozens of steps each one they completed themselves. But this was more of the assembly line production idea. And Mr. Brown really crafted this and made this successful in the shoe business. And uh, there were different companies that made nothing but heels, the heels Mm -hmm. for men's shoes. Or there would be people that would make the eyelets for women's high top boots and shoes. 
um, in the late 1800s. So things like that. They jobbed out supplies. Then the supplies came into places like Brown Shoe Company or International Shoe Company, and the pieces were then put together and assembled into the boots and shoes. We're talking today to Valerie Battle Kinzel. Her new book is Ready to Wear, A History of the Footwear and Garment Industries in St. Louis. And it's such a treat to have Valerie here today because she's really become an expert in all of this history. And so if you have a question for her or if you just remember sort of the heyday of some of these things we're talking about, some of these old St. Louis businesses, and, and you want to share your recollections, our phone lines are open. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Valerie, you had a great line in this this book where you talk about how the buildings and warehouses that lined Washington Avenue were called castles of clothing. Was that hyperbole or in addition to all the shoe factories, was there also a lot of clothes being made along that street? It was really a combination of both footwear and garments. And predominantly, yes, Washington Avenue, there were some businesses located like at corners or um, intersecting streets, but much of that area down there. And I'm told by grandchildren of company owners and people that maybe worked there at one time in one or the other of the industries that the street literally hummed with production noises and uh, you'd hear shoe lasting machines, you'd hear people, wagons, trucks, loading and unloading supplies, you would see people with uh, rolling garment racks going up and down the sidewalks from one production facility to another. So I'm sure it must have been a very noisy, but very lively and very interesting place to be um, Mm -hmm. in the 20th century. So in those early days of the 20th century, was getting a job at a St. Louis shoe factory, was that considered a, a good job or were there some issues with the working conditions there? Um. This was before the days of OSHA standards, Mm -hmm. so there were no safety concerns per se. Um, Many of the workers were women at that time. They were dramatically underpaid compared to male workers. And also, sadly, there were children that worked in a lot of these factories. Uh, Many, many uh, German immigrants came and settled in the St. Louis area around a lot of these shoe companies around not too far from Washington Avenue, they traditionally had a different work ethic. In other words, if you were a mouth to feed and to clothe, then you could contribute to the finances for the family. And so many children went to work. Um, They did not get schooling. They went to work and there were plenty of workers. So if somebody lost a finger or injured an arm or a foot, there were plenty of people waiting in line to take that job. Hmm. And I know a lot of reforms and, and even the formation of OSHA comes out of, of some of the concerns of, of what was happening in those eras, a lot of probably very necessary reforms. Uh, but speaking of children, on a happier note, you do get into the history here of the Buster Brown character. And this character has a long association with St. Louis shoes. What made Buster Brown such an icon? Okay, well, again, this is George Ward Brown during the 1904 World's Fair. There was a cartoonist named Richard Alcult, and he uh, did a Sunday cartoon called Buster Brown and His Dog Tie. Mr. Brown, uh, George Warren Brown, approached him and said he would like to license the use of this image, this product. And Mr. Brown also had a small factory at 
the, I think it was the building and manufacturers there at the World's Fair. Hmm. So they reached an agreement and Buster Brown became associated with this new line of children's shoes. Then there was a gentleman, he was a, a petite individual. He was not a child, but in costume, he looked like a child. He and a dog that they named Ty went on a train trip around the country to promote the shoes, became very popular. They were treated like celebrities wherever they went. And children, you know, they they saw Buster Bound and it's like, well, I want to wear his shoes. He's and, a really cool guy. And did people know at that, at that time that Buster Brown was not a child, that this was a, a little person impersonating a child? I don't think so. And, okay. and you really wouldn't have known unless you got up really, really close to him because he had on a wig, he had makeup, um, he had uh, short pants like boys wore at the time. And um, he and the dog performed some tricks on stage. Um, but one of the other things that I found interesting, and uh, Greg Romberg had given us pictures to use, were some of the promotional items that promoted children's shoes. This was the predecessor to things like fast food restaurants today that have toys or fun things associated with their food. Children would see other children with these and say, hey, I can get one of those for free if I have a pair of those shoes. Mom, Dad, I want to get a pair of Buster Brown shoes. I want to get a pair of Red Goose shoes. So it was really kind of a marketing genius. And that was started here in St. Louis also. Hmm. I'm going to go to the phone lines here. We have a caller who has some personal knowledge about one of these iconic um, St. Louis shoe companies. Tino is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Tino, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Thank you so much. Can you hear me clearly? I, I... wanted to turn my radio down. I'm in my car, so I want to do this properly. Yes, Tino, <laughs> you, you sound great. Um, tell me what oh, your family connection is here. Good. I just wanted to mention my grandfather and great-grandfather, uh, Frank, Frank Chambliss Rand, and Henry Hale Rand and the Johnson family were uh, were the original founders of International Shoe Company. And there's a wonderful story there. And I'm and I'm sure I'm looking forward to reading your book, by the way, Valerie. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but I, I wanted to emphasize that that St. Louis actually became the shoe capital of the world, and International Shoe was was. Really, they were the real giant in all that, and I think it's I think it's lost mm-hmm. a lot of times that we don't really pay attention to that. And it's it's just for me a personal a personal thing. I know that Edison shoe was big and Brown shoe was big, and of course they're not in business any longer, and that's another story. But they had nine tanneries at one point. Um, uh, and, and, that, and t- that international shoe said, and they also they also had the military contracts for World War One and World War Two. Tino, thank you for sharing that knowledge. And and yeah, Valerie does get into the international um, shoe company's history in this book in in some great detail. Valerie, they really were a huge deal. Tino's right there. Absolutely, they provided literally millions of boots and shoes for service people in both World War One and World War Two. Just unbelievable supply. Also, um, if you're familiar with the last hotel downtown on Washington Avenue at 15th, if you look above the doors, 
engraved in the uh, stone. It's Roberts Johnson and Rand Shoe Company. And mm. uh, that was the predecessor to International Shoe Company. And uh, it's got some beautiful architectural details. And that is the history that, that Tino was sharing with us there, his family history. That's so cool. And I should mention one of the reasons that I mentioned the old Brown Shoe Company, which I would say that International Shoe Company, Brown Shoe Company, they both get a lot of ink in this book. The Brown Shoe Company is still here today. Uh, they're known as Calaris. And they own Famous Footwear, Allen Edmonds, a whole bunch of brands that most of us wear on our feet. Um, but a lot of these places are no longer here anymore. And then, Valerie, you get a bit into International Shoe Company's problems. Um, when was the end of the road for them? Um, really, uh, things started tapering off, I guess, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, as there were more regulations to be followed here in the United States and um, increased uh, costs to pay workers. And so things began to shift to other parts of the country, other parts of the world where labor and resources were cheaper. So harder for a St. Louis-based company to compete if somebody was making shoes overseas. Yes. Okay. So, Valerie, we just have a few minutes here left today, but I would be remiss not to mention one of the things that I thought was most interesting in this book, and that is the fact that the juniors market was basically invented here. What are the origins of that happening here in St. Louis? Okay. Well, Washington University has always had a fabulous fine arts department, and there were students there that were doing costume design, clothing design. There was a gentleman in St. Louis affiliated with one of the department stores. His name was Irving Sorger. He saw some of these drawings by some of the WashU students, and he was just wowed by them. Up until that time, there was no distinction if you were a young woman, a teen, or if you were 50s, 60s, 70s. Clothing was basically the same. And let's just say maybe younger women got tired of looking frumpy. Mm -hmm. And um, so Mr. Sorger saw these styles. He was wowed by them, had some mock-ups made, and they sold instantly. And he knew he was onto something to the extent that at one time, people from New York and from California came here twice a year to see what the latest junior clothing styles were going to be for the next season. Hmm. And Valerie, one cool note that you get into the, in this book is this was the rare field where women designers really took the lead. Um, was that part of, of what made this actually work for young women? These were women who knew what women wanted. I think so, to a large extent. And, and there um, I found uh, some uh, copyrighted designs and uh, with the U.S. Patent Office, and they really were. They had uh, fun sleeves. They had buttons. They had embellishments. Uh, different hemlines and things that just made them fun. And so you didn't look so matronly walking down the street, I suppose. Collars. Hmm. So we're talking a lot about St. Louis history here with Valerie's book, Ready to Wear, A History of the Footwear and Garment Industries in St. Louis. And I should mention that this history is not all in the past. There is work to revitalize this fashion scene going on today. If you're interested in knowing more about that, you may want to check out St. Louis Public Radio reporter Andrea Henderson's 2019 radio feature on this subject. She focuses on some of the contemporary designers bringing St. Louis back as a fashion hub. We just tweeted out a link to that on our Twitter feed. That's STL on air if you're curious to read that. And Valerie, in our final minute here, I know you're really excited about the St. Louis Fashion Fund. Uh, what's the idea there? Okay, well, the Fashion Fund was started in 2014, and um, it basically was an effort to regenerate interest in clothing, footwear, jewelry, production on 
a personal at home, homegrown level. <laughs> and uh, so the Fashion Fund has really been able to attract a number of different places. Evolution St. Louis, um, there's Rungalies, the normal company, Brandon Vaughn, there's all these different places, Luso, Stars Design Group, that have become up and coming in St. Louis. And so they're revitalizing. And interestingly enough, a lot of them are located down in the Washington Avenue area. One thing that I really would like to note is that if um, people are interested in supporting the St. Louis Fashion Fund's efforts to bring young entrepreneurs and seamsters back to the area, they can purchase the Ready to Wear book by going to the website www.stlfashionbook.com and 25% of the proceeds will then go to the St. Louis Fashion Fund. Oh, that Valerie, that is a, a great tie-in to everything we've talked about today and to this book. So thank you for, for getting that plug in there. And also thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing all this wonderful history. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.